0: Welcome to the Denver Snuffer Podcast. This is the second part of an interview Denver did this past summer with Rick Bennett for his Gospel Tangents Podcast, which is presented here in its entirety in this series.
1: Um, All right, so I've I've, I've got a a bunch of questions that I want to ask. So, um, since you mentioned the uh, the Book of Mormon translation that you've done, and you said that if, if you take out the punctuation, then it it becomes less Trinitarian. Yes. Um, also, you mentioned, uh, and I, because I've read lectures on faith, and one of my understandings is lectures on faith is very Trinitarian, and I feel like that's kind of why the LDS Church uh, put put that away. And so, um, so I'm curious, because you've canonized that. To me, the, lecture, the lectures on faith sounds very Trinitarian. And the Book of Mormon, as we have it, does sound very, very Trinitarian. So it's interesting to me to hear you say, well, if you take out the punctuation, I guess it would support more of a novel-style theology? Is that, is that oh, the yeah, way?
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think so. Um, so. So how
1: would you respond to that, I guess?
2: Well, let me see if I can find the... The language um, the uh, the lecture that talks about uh, who god is uh, see one of my problems is that uh, I just got this on the twenty fifth and this is the twenty eighth i haven't i haven't gotten to um, to uh, Lectures on Faith to look at it uh, just yet. There's a definition given of who God is there, uh, in Lectures on Faith. And it says that there is God the Father who is a personage of um, uh, spirit, power, glory. And then there's God the Son and he's a personage, and then there's the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost is um, the mind of the Father and the Son, and um, that is very Nauvoo-era doctrinally correct. Um, and uh, And that... That definition of God is one that He returns to. The Holy Ghost in in the lectures on faith um, makes the uh, the personage of God uh, two two individuals, and then in addition to the two individuals, uh, the Holy Ghost is the mind of um, of the two of them. Well. This is also in your um, Pearl of Great Price um, definition because it's in the book of Moses, but it's in Genesis chapter 4 in these. Therefore it is given to abide in you the record of heaven, the comforter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the truth of all things, that which quickens all things, Which makes alive all things, that which knows all things, and that which has all power according to wisdom, mercy, truth, justice, and judgment. That's in um, the book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, Genesis 4 in the Old Covenants. That's the definition of the Holy Ghost, the comforter that God or that Christ says he will send in the book of John to. The disciples, after he ascends, that comforter is the record of heaven, the comforter, the keys of the kingdom, the truth of all things, and so on, which is exactly what is the lecture on faith description of the Holy Ghost, which is the mind of the Father and the mind of the Son, the record of heaven, the truth of all things, that which quickeneth all things. And so you have two personages in lectures on faith. You have a Holy Ghost that is really a manifestation of their minds. You have in the book of Moses, uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 4, the Holy Ghost being the record of heaven, the truth of all things, the comforter. Um, you have uh, the Holy Ghost not as a personage, you have the Holy Ghost as a a kind of vibrant force of truth that is bestowed upon mankind generally. Then we have from the Willard Richards pocketbook that uh, statement by Joseph that the father has a a body of flesh and bone, the son also But the Holy Ghost has not a a body of flesh and bones, but is a spirit. Were it not so, it cannot dwell within us. Um, And there's an interesting article written about how that came about. That didn't stabilize. It went through multiple iterations and multiple expanding and contracting versions of what it was that is attributed to Joseph Smith before Brigham Young finally settled the dispute and and reduced it to what is now in the, in the um, LDS, uh, Doctrine and Covenants. Um, that may or may not be a reliable definition of the Holy Ghost. Certainly what we have in lectures on faith that Joseph vouched for the accuracy of, and what we have in the uh, Genesis chapter 4 or uh, uh, Pearl of Great Price, Moses, There, I think it's Moses chapter 6, is a kind of different definition. So, um, I don't think Joseph started out Trinitarian, although when he reports what he learned from the first vision in his story that he wrote in 1838 is that he went home and essentially said, I learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. And that was his response to his mother when she thought he looked rather haggard from what the encounter was. Never mind, I'm well enough off. I've learned for myself that Presbyterianism isn't true. And I think that was probably what Joseph got out of the first vision on the day after the first vision. Um, Anyway.
1: So so you're saying that Okay, so you're saying that lectures on faith is not trinitarian, essentially. I know. Mean, I don't think so. You don't think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and so you're saying that the Book of Mormon, if you take out the punctuation as Joseph originally wrote it, is not trinitarian either.
2: Right. I'm saying you can repunctuate the the Book of Mormon in the LDS version is still John Gilbert's punctuation. Today, the LDS Church is living with John Gilbert's punctuation. We're not, um, and it's easy to repunctuate and to reach a different result. I've given a talk on this, and there's, uh, there's stuff out there that will demonstrate what I'm talking about if you're interested or if someone listening's interested.
1: Yeah, well, so a um, couple of things that I want to talk about since we're talking about your scriptures. Um, and I guess I should mention, uh, I, one, I've read your book, a Passing the Heavenly Gift. And um, one of the things... That that and, was, and
2: you're willing to admit that? Are, do you still have a temple recommend?
1: <laughs> I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we should we should probably talk about that one because that was a bit of a controversial book. Um, and, and, and I do want to talk about the history of that. But, but the reason why I bring it up in the context of your scriptures is uh, when I read it, um, one of the interesting things to me was your, your take on... Um, Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and uh, from what I understand, you had said, and I've heard various things, so maybe you can clear up this. But when you wrote in passing the heavenly gift, you had mentioned there were really it was really four revelations, and I like I like that interpretation. I don't know that I, I necessarily agree that that's historically accurate, but um, I and I understand. So I'm curious if you still stand behind what you've written because I understand. You kind of evolved on your beliefs about
2: polygamy. So can you talk about that? Um, like any, uh, interested and attentive Latter-day Saint, um, my understanding of the history of what happened in the early church began using, um, uh, The B.H. Roberts material, the uh, Joseph Smith history as gathered by B.H. Roberts, Um, uh, I I got baptized um, September 10th of 1973. There was a lady in our ward that ran a 70s Mission bookstore. I don't know if anyone in your audience is old enough to remember 70s Mission bookstores. So
1: Anne was
2: she mentioned it yeah yeah anyway i um there was on her porch i bought and i read you know the autobiography of uh, parley pratt i read all the biographies of heber c kimball john taylor i i read the the uh, was it seven volume set by uh b.h roberts i read the um uh, the the multiple volume set that was attributed to Joseph Smith that is the forerunner of the Joseph Smith Papers project. I I read everything I could get my hands on in order to try and understand. I mean, if this is really the work of God, if 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 God restored something, He's speaking again. I mean, He hasn't done that since we close out the New Testament record. Now He's speaking, and stuff is rolling forth that that tells us the mind of God, then we ought to, we ought to pay particular attention. So in, in the era that I came in, that 1973 time frame, you're really looking at, at leadership that consists of um, Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, who's the doctrinal go-to guy. You've, you've got, uh, you know, Marion Romney... He can stand his own. You've got Mark Peterson who thinks he's all that on doctrine. And, uh, you know, you you had, uh, well, Ineldon Tanner was a money guy. Um, But uh, you've got men up there, Boyd K. Packer, who ran CES at the time. Um, You got men who have really strong opinions and essentially a consensus about what was and what was not history, and then uh, you you wind up with Arrington, and Arrington winds up hiring uh, D. Michael Quinn, and then Arrington appears to go a little off the reservation, and D. Michael Quinn appears to go way off the reservation. And um, my initial reaction to what D. Michael Quinn did was to think, what a what an awful. What an awful turn of events that that a man would apostasy and then turn around and and trash the the history of the restoration in this wretched fashion. But it was Michael Quinn's work that got me looking for and trying to find original source material. Um, Michael Quinn donated a bunch of the material that he had to Yale University And then Signature Books had someone go back to Yale University or maybe they went back on their own and Signature was just the ones that would print it. And so these diaries and these journals begin to roll out that is the source material from which Michael Quinn drew his conclusions because he had access to and made copies from the church archives that weren't particularly open Arrington made them open somewhat, but but they weren't particularly open. So church history was written from a closed point of view, a controlled point of view. And Michael Quinn actually represents sort of opening the door and seeing behind the orthodox interpretation. So, So the materials that Michael Quinn made available became available and this this orthodox, traditional view of history, which I understood well. I mean, I had studied it. I I was a uh, Fielding Smith, McConkie, Packer disciple, and to me, Michael Quinn's view was heretical. But as you begin to examine the source material from which Michael Quinn drew his conclusions. You begin to see that that in some respects he's not um, at all unfair, and in some ways he's not just fair, but he's he's kindly. He's he's being um, sympathetic in his viewpoint. Uh, he got in a lot of trouble because what he wrote had a far different look and feel than the look and feel that you get from this other narrative. So passing the heavenly gift was an attempt to take a whole another bundle of source material that existed and was available, and I'd gone to the trouble of buying these, these small print, you know, 300 copies were all that were ever put in print, but Kurt Bench over at Benchmark is... Uh, one of the outlets that sells this stuff. So I was able to access these diaries, these journals, and to look at it myself. And uh, my attitude towards Michael Quinn changed considerably, and my view of what the church was doing with their history changed considerably. But of all the subjects that are out there, probably the most controversial, internationally known, um, dramatic topic of all is the plural marriage subject. And I mean, I, I don't want to get really granular about it, but to me it required over 40 years of research to reach a conclusion. It wasn't it wasn't a single view. I mean, if you're going to read everything that is said by the um, advocates and the defenders of the plural marriage establishment through Joseph Smith, um, you have a library of material that you're going to have to plow through. And if you're going to say, okay, what... um, What are the arguments then on the other side of the coin about the issue of plural marriage? Because you've got got Emma denying that Joseph ever practiced that. But you also have incidents in which um, Emma Smith was present in something that happened that William McClellan tries to sensationalize in his account Talking about his discussion with Emma about the very incident that you're talking about, and then you've got Joseph's view of that, and you've got Oliver Cowdery's accusation, and the minutes of the High Council in Far West when Oliver Cowdery was disciplined for what he was saying about that same incident. The Fanny Alger stuff, and and you've got all of this. These points to triangulate from, you know, what are you to make of it? I can can tell you that story and make Joseph Smith an adulterer and a a plural marriage practitioner, or I can tell you that story and I can make Joseph Smith absolutely chaste and that what happened there was not, uh, by any stretch, a sexual liaison. Um. Fanny Alger would have nine children from a husband. Uh, Joseph Smith fathered eight children through Emma Smith. They were both at the peak of their fertility when the two of them had something going on, and yet there was no progeny. There was no child. In fact, there's no child born that was fathered by Joseph Smith other than the children that came through Emma Smith. So if you're going to turn Joseph Smith into something that is akin to the narrative by the LDS Church, one of the questions that ought to enter into your balancing of what happened is the absence of any progeny when you've got a fertile man and you've got fertile women who bore children to other men but never bore a child for Joseph Smith. What effect ought that have on your thinking and interpretation of the historical events? And you got Emma Smith's denial that anything had gone on. So, um, it's, it's a long, arduous process to get through enough of the source material in order to form a fair opinion and even after you form a fair opinion and the one i had initially in passing the heavenly gift reached was that if um if people are reliable and one of the stories of the angel with the drawn sword comes from um Eliza Snow and Eliza Snow is someone for whom i had some respect um so i'm going to give credence to that because of her And the story that she tells suggested that um, something happened in order to provoke Joseph to initially begin implementation of something that Joseph Smith was reluctant to implement. Well, um, you go to the high council minutes in far west and Joseph is acquitted and Oliver Cowdery is convicted of slandering him, and everyone heard it, you go to the incident in Nauvoo when Joseph dictated a revelation in July of 1843. It was written down by William Clayton. Hiram Smith took the revelation. It was read to the High Council of Nauvoo. The High Council minutes in Nauvoo talk about what was read to them. And they say it's an explanation of an ancient order of things and it has nothing to do with some practice today. How do you reconcile all of the different triangulation points? Because this now is a contemporary statement, both in the High Council in Far West and the High Council in, in Nauvoo. These are contemporaneous things that suggest There's a problem with the narrative that Joseph is out there betting women, uh, including, in the most outrageous form, betting young teenagers. Well, uh, to his credit, when he wrote Rough Stone Rolling, Bushman grapples with this issue. Uh, He comes down on the side of the historical storytelling, but he says that And I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close. Uh, He says that um, Joseph Smith was not a Lothario and that he didn't father children with other children, with other women, that his desire for sealing appears to be related to plentitude in the afterlife. Plentitude in the afterlife. Well, somewhere along the line, the idea of sealing and the idea of marriage become one and the same, and they overlap into, well, if someone's sealed, then someone's married. And it's not at all clear. If if you go back, it's really hard for people to um, accept this idea. Well, I had dinner with Michael Quinn, and I, I posed this... That's yeah, I posed this to him over dinner. I said, okay, let's take June 27th, 1844, and let's say right there, that's the end of the historical that's the, record. That's the death of Joseph Smith. Yes, that's the day Joseph is killed in Hiram. That's the end. You, you consider nothing that got written down or got introduced. After June 27, 1844, and you are limited absolutely to the material that got its existence put pen to paper before that date. Okay? What do you have? What do you have to support Joseph Smith practicing plural marriage with sexual relations with other women than Emma? It was an interesting dinner. It was an interesting evening. We had an interesting conversation. He, well, I don't know if I had to quote him. I don't know if your listeners are going to be offended. But it we got on that topic because he said that his his reaction to my position on the plural marriage subject was bullshit. And I said, well, okay, then let's let's start with the proposition that we're gonna take June 27th and we're only gonna go before. And we went back and forth for a few minutes, and he said, I see where you're coming from. Because if you consider the source material that only was extant on that date.
1: All the Temple lot case and everything, because it's after June
2: 27th. All of that stuff. All of the affidavits got gathered. Look, the idea that you get to practice plural wyvery is not made public until 1852 in a general conference talk, in which uh, Orson, Orson uh, Pratt was assigned to introduce the topic by Brigham Young, and then Brigham gets up, and and then you've got the the, the historian, uh, the assistant historian that had worked in uh, in Nauvoo and who was working in in Salt Lake under the leadership of um, uh, Kimball. Um, running the historian's office, and he says in one of his diary entries that the records that they brought with them from Nauvoo, the records were being altered to conform to the new regime. You're talking
1: about Heber Kimball?
2: No, he worked under Heber Kimball. Um, His name will occur to me in a minute, but... But he wrote in his diary, who's working under, that, that the records were now being altered in order to fit the new, uh, the new system of things, the new regimen. Um, and, and so you have to question if they're willing to go so far as to interlineate and alter original source material, including William Clayton's own diary being altered. Uh, one entry that you can see in the Joseph Smith papers has this, this incredibly innocent statement that, uh, is, is about, uh, fidelity and monogamy. And it's turned into a statement about how only one man at a time has the authority to, to introduce the plural wife system and that he, Joseph, was that guy from interlineations. Um, I've, I've written about all this. Anyway, the, the, the fact is that If you confine yourself to what existed at the time that Joseph was alive, you have a very, very difficult time saying that there is evidence Joseph did anything other than practice something called sealing that was designed to create plentitude in the afterlife. Joseph Smith, as Bushman described it, wanted large families to go into the eternities. In um, John Taylor's book, The Government of God, he asserts that the government of God in eternity is the family. So if Joseph Smith is trying to restore on earth the family of God, the way in which you restore the family of God is to bind people together into some sealed family connection. doesn't matter that... um, they're married to one another. If you seal them together, you seal people into a family relationship that can exist on into eternity. So Joseph doesn't use the word adoption in the context of sealing until October of 1843. In the Joseph Smith papers, that's the earliest date I can find that in his diaries— that the word adoption uh, gets used. Letters in the law of adoption. Yeah, um, a very misunderstood concept. But Joseph practiced something that was adoption. But apparently, the introduction of that occurs in about the October 1843 timeframe. Um, until then, if you're talking sealing, without defining what sealing meant. You weren't using the word adoption. You were using the word marriage in people's projection of what the word meant backward. If the sealing that took place was some form of familial tie that was designed to bind together as a family to Joseph, who had a connection that had been made to heaven, then what was being sealed was a family and not um, a sexual partner, Um but beginning in that October eighteen forty three time frame, there there comes out something that results in um, adoption. Joseph will be dead within six months. Between the October mention and the time of his death six months later, there really isn't enough time in order to develop um, even a even an adequate historical record of what Joseph was doing with the idea of adoption in that in that time period. It gets mentioned. And then what happens is that following his death, by the time you get to the 1845 November to February 1846 time period, there is adoption practice going on. The the language that we get in the word and the will of the Lord um, about captains of fifty and captains of a hundred is actually it's it's actually kind of code for public consumption that was adoption practice going on in the Nauvoo era. So um, set that aside for just a moment. Adoption being the organization of the companies that uh, were assigned and organized through temple ceremonies and adoption process preliminary to the migration, the abandonment of the the Nauvoo Temple, the the companies migrating out into the Salt Lake Valley. And um, they practiced something called adoption. Then as they migrate across there are these conversations that enter into journals. One of the funniest to me is John D. Lee's journal where he's talking about someone asking John D. Lee to be sealed to him, adopted to him, uh, because it's going to increase his kingdom. And John D. Lee saying, why would I be adopted to you? Why don't you be adopted to me so I get to be the 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 boss in the afterlife and the government of God. a Great
1: Pyramid Scheme, right?
2: It's yeah, it's all just fabulously stupid because they're, they're, they're aspiring, if this stuff be truthful, holy, and sacred, they're aspiring to manipulate the afterlife by having introduced to them a concept that Joseph only had a six-month time period between introduction and death, and it doesn't get fleshed out. Then you you have to go to many, many years later when you have journal entries by Cannon and by Taylor and by um, Pratt, Hyde, and and their, their conversations and the notes of meetings that they held where they say things like, I never understood what Joseph Smith was doing with adoption. Cannon goes so far as to say, I didn't believe it when he introduced it, and I don't believe it now. And so the concept of adoption just drifts into wreckage. And, and adoption as a, as a concept related to sealing turns into mush, and it, it gets abandoned. It wind up being a fight. But the idea of adoption had a profound effect on the history of the church, Because Brigham Young led the first company. They come in. This is the place. They settle down. He has himself uh, anointed a a king and a priest in the log cabin that was built. And then the king returns across the plains back to uh, Winter Quarters. On his way back, he runs into the company that had John Taylor and um, Parley Pratt in it. Uh, John Taylor and Parley Pratt had some kind of sealing adoption organization put together for the companies they led in the migration. And when Brigham Young met them, they had reorganized the companies that they were in contrary to the way that Brigham Young had adopted folks together in the ceremonies in Nauvoo. So now they were in defiance of the priesthood by what they'd done. Well, they were members of the quorum of the Twelve they were I mean the vote that was taken on what August eighth of eighteen forty four was that the quorum of the Twelve would take care of the church, not Brigham Young, it was the quorum so John taylor and uh and Parley Pratt didn't regard Brigham Young as having any right to rule and reign or dictate. Uh, over them, they were doing what they thought best. After they saw how the company functioned, they they realigned the adoptions as they were going west. Well, Brigham Young fumed from there all the way back to winter quarters. And while we didn't have them before, the collected, uh, complete discourses of Brigham Young, which I think were put in print for the first time in 2011... Uh, you, you can look. I mean, it, yeah, that's
1: it's really expensive set. Yeah,
2: yeah, I bought one of those. Oh, they were they were meant for libraries, but I bought one. They are expensive, but they're comprehensive. You can read what happened. There's there's this when Sidney Rigdon was campaigning to be elected after the death of Joseph Smith, his his speechifying in Nauvoo to try and solicit votes for him. Was bizarre. I mean, he he his he seems deranged. Brigham Young spent several days trying to persuade Wilford Woodruff that he Brigham Young needed to be elected president. They needed a president, and Woodruff wouldn't relent. His position was it required a revelation to reorganize the first presidency. And um, Brigham Young's position was it didn't require a revelation. It just required a vote. That Joseph Smith got made president by, revelation, or by a vote of the, the the group, he did not get made president by a revelation. 100%. Yeah, it was just an election. It was just, and that he could be elected the same way and it would have exactly the same effect. No revelation required. And eventually he wore down uh, Wilford Woodruff. Woodruff got on board with that. And they assembled. They called a general conference, and they held a vote. Um, in the process of holding the vote, Brigham Young did some speechifying, and and I tell you, it reminds me, it reminds me of Sidney Rigdon in the August campaign in Nauvoo for the election. He's practically incoherent now. To give him the benefit of the doubt, he'd kept Wilford Woodruff awake, haranguing him. And he couldn't sleep if he was doing that. So he's sleep-deprived at the time he's giving the talk. But one of the things that he says in the aftermath of being elected is that he could hardly wait to get back to Salt Lake to have Parley Pratt and John Taylor confess that they are not Brigham Young, meaning that now he's in authority and he has and he alone has the right to dictate what goes on and that it is an act of apostasy against the priesthood to rebel against what the chief says cuz cuz they apparently were not willing to relent when they came across the plains so having been elected as president in winter quarters he goes back to salt lake and the rest of the quorum of the 12 who were back in salt lake have to choose between a fight again after relocating from Nauvoo over leadership or submitting to what Brigham was saying and rather than split things up again they relented, Brigham was elected and he says he has the right to dictate well they he still had not yet clarified that he intended to assert that he and he alone could seal because Parley Pratt even after that sealed other Women to him, including Lenore, whose husband would ultimately murder Parley. Um, And um, Brigham Young would later say that those women that Parley Pratt sealed to himself after Brigham was elected president was adultery. And he went so far as to say that the murder of Parley Pratt was justified because it was adultery and he essentially had it coming to him. Um, because once he was elected president, uh, Brigham Young said, I and I alone am the only guy who gets to so do he sealing.
1: Consolidated the sealing because it was kind of distributed before that.
2: It was, it was far and wide. All of that history needs to be taken and put into the hopper if you're trying to figure out what Joseph Smith was trying to do with sealing between the Fanny Alger moment and the moment at which Joseph is slain. Because if he had absolutely no intention of creating sexual access to women by sealing, but he had instead the intention to put together in a form that would be recognized into eternity, as a familial connection, as um, Bushman puts it, familial plentitude, then we really have to put on a whole different lens if we're going to try and interpret what went on. So I was grappling still in passing the heavenly gift with the whole subject. Uh, I I was trying to show appropriate deference to whatever the historical narrative was. I mean, I wrote that book as a member of the church. I I didn't, I mean, I pulled every punch that I could pull uh, in order not to be someone that's just um, a hostile critic. I I believe if the LDS church had adopted Passing the Heavenly Gift, like they adopted Rough Stone Rolling, And they said, look, this is a very different way to look at the history of the restoration. But you can look at it this way. And if you do, you can still be happy and associate with us. I believe if they had done that, they would be facing today far less of a religious crisis than they are currently facing with the members of the church. I never left Mormonism. I never even left the LDS Church. The LDS Church gave me the boot. But, I mean, I was 100% home teacher. I was a a tithe payer. I was a temple recommend holder. You were on the high council, as I understand. I was a missionary prep, I think it
1: was.
2: I did. I taught gospel doctrine. Um, I was, while all this nonsense was going on, the flap about the book, I was helping at the request of the um, stake president, uh, a return missionary who had lost his testimony and was a student at BYU. And so uh, he said the only one he knew in the stake that could help the young man was me. And so I had him come over. Um, to my house. In fact, I I I would go to interviews with the stake president preliminary to the issue of whether I'm going to be excommunicated or not. And on my way home from that, I would stop by and get this return missionary in a faith crisis. He'd come to my house, and we'd spend time talking about what his issues were. The first issue and the most troubling to him was polygamy. So we started with polygamy. And we spent weeks talking about that topic. Then the next topic, I forget what it was, but we didn't. He had a list of concerns. By the time we got through the first two, he said, really, I don't think I've got any other concerns because what you said satisfies me that I'm, I'm looking in the wrong place for answers. There's, there's more substantive material out there than answers.
1: Could, because in your book you basically said um, and this is really attractive to me. I'm going to tell you that. Yeah, yeah. That you separated the ceiling from the polygamy. Yeah. And and from what I understand with your new uh, version of. I know you don't call it the Doctrine and Covenants. The Teachings and Commandments. It Teachings and Commandments. Yeah. Um, you kind of excised the polygamy parts out of 132. Sorry.
2: I tried to fix 132. I, I actually went through it and tried to make it a consistent document. I, I said to myself, okay, knowing everything that I know about what went on in the Restoration, if I start with this document, can I fix it? And I made a concerted effort that the dramatically contradictory stuff. I threw out the contradictions, and I tried to edit it.
1: Probably threw out the condemnation to Emma, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually
2: really glad
1: to hear that. Yeah, I tried.
2: I tried to fix it, and and when I got all done with that, I thought, well, maybe that is is if if they were interlineating, I mean, DNC 132 was hidden until um, eight, yeah, when it was first announced in a in a general conference talk by Orson Pratt. Uh, Until then, it was hidden. What do they do with it in the interim? Because the only copy that we've got is in the handwriting of Joseph Kingsbury. Yeah,
1: well, Emma Emma burned the one, right?
2: Yeah, well, Emma was was allowed to burn the one. She was, it was, everyone agreed to it.
1: So, well, going back to here, because... But,
2: but, But think about what the source is. Joseph Kingsbury. Joseph Kingsbury. It's not a clerk of Joseph Smith's in the historian's office. It's not a scribe of Joseph Smith. It's a guy. So you're
1: saying it's a myth that Emma threw it in the fire?
2: No, I'm saying that the copy we have, the only extant copy we have is in the handwriting of Joseph Kingsbury. Mm -hmm. Whatever it was that existed before that that he says he copied from what William Clayton wrote. And we've got Kingsbury's word for it. Um, Kingsbury did not work as a scribe or someone that helped write history for Joseph Smith. When Kingsbury was called to testify in the Temple Lot case, he refused to swear to tell the truth about 132. He, He would not swear that his testimony could be charged with perjury if it wasn't true. He just refused to take so that he oath. He did not
1: testify?
2: He testified. He, he, said, refused to take the... he refused to take the oath, but he testified anyway. Okay. He said, I'll affirm. I'll affirm, but I will not swear to it. And they want to know what the difference was. He says, Affirm is just me telling you what I understand. But if I swear to it, I can be charged with perjury. And he didn't want to do that. And they
1: want to testify anyway?
2: Let him testify. Anyway. Well, I've
1: never heard about that before.
2: That's yeah. Interesting.
1: yeah. Okay, but so so with passing the heavenly gift, you were under the.
2: I was still under the the effort to explore and try to understand. And
1: so you believe that Joseph Smith did
2: tried to make the church's story work.
1: The, with polygamy?
2: Yes, tried to. Yeah, religion. trying my best to make that story work.
1: But you don't you don't stand by that anymore.
2: Well, I, I finally reached a conclusion. Part of the reason I was able to reach a conclusion is the Joseph Smith papers coming out and source material that didn't exist then, existing now, and research that was done by a number of others that uh, has also rolled out. I mean, I thought at the time passing the Heavenly Gift was printed, I thought the evidence was really equivocal. It's clear. Well,
1: I it's still thinks it's, it's pretty clear, right? What's that? Michael Quinn still thinks it's...
2: Well, Michael Quinn gives credence to the 1860 affidavits. I mean, he he has a hard time envisioning the idea that a whole bunch of people would sign affidavits in uh, Joseph F. Smith's affidavit book to support the lawsuit if they were swearing falsely. And those affidavits were used as evidence in the Temple Lot case. So they were gathered with a specific purpose in mind. Well, think about it now... In the 1860s, they're, for the first time, creating a record about what had happened two decades or more earlier, and Joseph is dead. But they've made public, and they have taught you. They've reassured you. They've testified to from the pulpit to you since the 1852 time frame that this is a revelation that came through Joseph Smith and you know your church is true and you know that 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 temple in Kirtland belongs to your group and you know, because he's said it, you know Emma's apostate. Brigham Young called her a wicked, wicked, wicked woman. If Joseph Smith wants to be with Emma Smith, He's going to have to go to hell to be with her because that's where that wicked, wicked, wicked woman is. They know all that because they've been told that in isolation here for a couple of decades and Joseph's not around and you've got a burning testimony of the restoration. Uh, Are you going to sign an affidavit when you know it's true? When you know, I mean, the church leaders are asking that you sign. A member of the Quorum of the Twelve, a future president of the church. Remember, the first presidency is asking you to sign an affidavit. Are you going to sign the affidavit?
1: An affidavit that makes you look like an unvirtuous woman? Like, who, who in their right mind would do that?
2: It's not unvirtuous in the state of Deseret in 1860.
1: But the entire government is. In fact, the church over this.
2: Doesn't matter. They won't succeed in doing that until 1890. In fact, it's those promiscuous Romans that introduced and enforced monogamy so they could get a supply of prostitutes. The virtuous, lovely Christian community, including, according to Brigham Young, Jesus Christ Himself, they were all polygamists so that you didn't have to have prostitutes. But the wicked Mormons, or the wicked Romans, the Romans wanted monogamy because they needed an ample supply of prostitutes to keep themselves happy in their public baths and such. So the virtuous women were the polygamous wives that, that, that bore children and lived in a familial relationship, not those monogamous fools that, that pretend to piety and produce prostitutes. It's like um, Mark Twain commented in Roughing It, um, uh, he said uh, when when uh, he first thought of plural wives, he thought it was an exercise in uh, a licentiousness. But when he got a look at the poor, ungainly creatures that were being married, he said he felt inclined to take his hat off in reverence because he's standing in the presence of pure Christian charity, the man that would marry one of them was a Christian soul. But the man that would marry ten of them <laughs> has committed an act of Christian charity and virtue that's unthinkable in the modern world. But that's Mark Twain, and he's always tongue-in-cheek. He's but i got to tell you, have you seen the picture of Sarah Pratt in Volume 10 of the, of the Joseph Smith Papers? It's worth the trouble. It's worth the trouble of looking at the picture of Sarah Pratt in Volume 10 of the Joseph Smith Papers. I I have a friend I went to law. (laughs) I'll leave his name out. I have a friend I went to law school with who's a descendant of the Pratt's. His last name isn't Pratt. He's a descendant of the Pratt's. Sarah Pratt. Looks like my law school buddy <laughs> with long hair. <laughs> Twain was right. It was an act of Christian charity. Boy, now we're way off. Right,
1: yeah. We're
2: way off base. Yeah. And...
1: <laughs> all right, so... Um, I, I... I do know
2: some Prats. They're probably all going to be offended at this. Okay, you go, you go look at the photo and you
0: decide for yourself. The foregoing was recorded on June twenty eighth, 2020, and is presented here with permission from Rick Bennett, who conducted the interview. For more information about upcoming Christian fellowship conferences, meetings, and events, please visit restorationarchives.com. There you will also find a complete collection of Denver's talks, lectures, and papers available to download free of charge. You can request baptism by visiting bornofwater.org. If you have questions or ideas for topics that you would like to have covered in this podcast, please submit them for consideration to questions at denversnufferpodcast.com. This podcast is a volunteer effort produced under the direction of Denver Snuffer. We hope you'll share it with everyone interested in learning more about Christ, the coming Zion, and the restoration of authentic Christianity now underway in our time.